0: Section 16 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, William Chillingworth, The Bible, The Religion of Protestants, Part 4. Chillingworth has virtually said, There is no real difficulty as to the meaning of scripture. The great principles of religion, what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us, are clearly revealed in the Bible. All Protestant churches have seen and acknowledged them. The Apostles' Creed embraces them. They are patent to the right reason, the expression is his own, and judgment of every man. The matters that separate Christians, or at least Protestant Christians, are not matters of faith necessary elements of religious truth pertaining to salvation, but matters of speculation on which Christians may differ safely or without any detriment to their spiritual condition. Such is the position laid down by Chillingworth he disposes in short of the question of religious certitude by reducing it to its simplest dimensions the proper objects the only valid objects of religious belief according to him are certain great facts or principles which are plainly revealed or made known to every open intelligence in scripture what lies beyond these facts or principles is either in its nature uncertain or in its bearing unimportant religious certitude in short can be reached by every honest mind with scripture before it Where such certitude is impossible it is unnecessary let us now attend to chillingworth's own statements many of which are very significant they are scattered over a wide surface but we will endeavor to exhibit them in such an order as to bring out his meaning fully and yet without exaggeration speaking of scripture in his second chapter as the only rule whereby to judge of controversies he says that it is sufficiently perfect and sufficiently intelligible to all that have understanding whether they be learned or unlearned and my reason hereof is convincing and demonstrative because nothing is necessary to be believed but what is plainly revealed for to say that where a place by reason of ambiguous terms lies indifferent between divers senses whereof one is true and the other is false that god obliges man under pain of damnation not to mistake through error and human frailty is to make god a tyrant and to say that he requires us certainly to attain that end for the attaining whereof we have no certain means which is to say that, like Pharaoh, he gives no straw and requires brick, that he reaps where he sows not, that he gathers where he strews not, that he will not accept of us according to that which we have, but requireth of us what we have not. Shall we not tremble to impute that to God which we would take as foul scorn if it were imputed to ourselves? Certainly I, for my part, fear I should not love God if I should think so strangely of him. Close quote. Again, he continues, addressing his opponent, quote, When you say that unlearned and ignorant men cannot understand scripture, I would desire you to come out of the clouds and tell us what you mean, whether that they cannot understand all scripture, or that they cannot understand any scripture, or that they cannot understand so much as is sufficient for their direction to heaven. If the first, I believe the learned are in the same case. If the second, every man's experience will confute you, for who is there who is not capable of a sufficient understanding of the story, the precepts, the promises, and the threats of the gospel? if the third that they may understand something but not enough for their salvations i ask you why then doth saint paul say to timothy the scriptures are able to make him wise unto salvation why does saint austin say "Eaque manifeste positas sunt in sacri scripturis omnia continent que pertinent ad fide moresque vivendi why does every one of the four evangelists entitle their book the gospel if any necessary and essential part of the gospel were left out of it can we imagine that either they omitted something necessary out of ignorance, not knowing it to be necessary, or knowing it to be so, maliciously concealed it, or out of negligence did the work they had undertaken by halves? If none of these things can be imputed to them, then certainly it must naturally follow that every one writ the whole gospel of Christ, I mean all the essential and necessary parts of it, so that if we had no other book of scripture than one of them alone, we should not want anything necessary to salvation." Close quote. Elsewhere, in a previous part of the same chapter, in reference to the statement that Scripture, admitting it to be a rule or law of faith, is no more fit to end controversies without a living judge than the law is alone to end such, he answers, If the law were plain and perfect, and men honest and desirous to understand a right and obey it, he that says it were not fit to end controversies must either want understanding himself or think the world wants it now the scriptures we pretend in things necessary is plain and perfect such a law therefore cannot but be very fit to end all controversies necessary to be ended for others that are not so they will end when the world ends and that is time enough Close quote. he repudiates the necessity of any judge to interpret scripture quote, every man is to judge for himself with the judgment of discretion for if the scripture as it is in things necessary be plain Why should it be more necessary to have a judge to interpret it in plain places, than to have a judge to interpret the meaning of a counsellor's decrees, and others to interpret their interpretations, and others to interpret them, and so on forever? And when they are not plain, then if we, using diligence to find the truth, do yet miss of it, and fall into error, there is no danger in it. They that err, and they that do not err, may both be saved. So that those places which contain things necessary and where no error was dangerous need no infallible interpreter because they are plain and those that are obscure need none because they contain not things necessary neither is error in them dangerous with such confidence does chillingworth lay down the principle of the sufficiency of scripture and of its plainness and intelligibility in all things necessary for salvation and therefore necessary to be believed He adverts over and over again to the great principle that the responsibility of faith is to be measured by the clearness and simplicity of the divine revelation if god has spoken plainly and man refused to receive the divine testimony he has no excuse to offer for him this were to give god the lie he says and questionless damnable but as for other things which lie without the covenant, following his own expression, that is to say, which are either obscure in themselves, or capable of different interpretations, according to the variety of tempers, abilities, educations, and unavoidable prejudices whereby men's understandings are variously formed and fashioned, quote, To say that God will damn men for errors as to such things, who are lovers of him and lovers of truth, is to rob man of his comfort and God of his goodness, is to make man desperate and God a tyrant, close quote. When you can show he adds in the same place in a passage of great emphasis quote when you can show that god hath interposed his testimony on one side or another so that either they do see it and will not or were it not for their own voluntary and avoidable fault might and should see it and do not let all such errors be as damnable as you please to make them but if they suffer themselves neither to be betrayed into their errors nor kept in them by any sin of their will if they do their best endeavour to free themselves from all errors and yet fail of it through human frailty so well am i persuaded of the goodness of god that if in me alone should meet a confluence of all such errors of all the protestants of the world that were thus qualified i should not be so much afraid of them all as i should be to ask pardon for them Close quote. scripture on the one hand therefore and the free honest open mind on the other hand these are with chillingworth the factors and the only factors of religious truth the essential elements of religious certitude scripture is an open mirror in which every intelligence may see the truth if it only look for it there is no necessity for any medium to transfer it or any judge to interpret it to the understanding it lies open to all in the simple statements of the gospels of any one of the gospels It is not to be supposed that chillingworth in thus nakedly asserting the sufficiency of the individual judgment or reason to find the meaning of scripture for itself puts aside or rejects the necessity of divine influence in reaching divine truth this special point was not in question between the two disputants they alike recognized the reality of divine revelation and the necessity of the divine spirit what they differed about was as to the medium of the revelation and the organ of the spirit to the jesuit the church was both the one and the other the revealing medium and the interpreting spirit scripture was merely a help to the church to chillingworth scripture and reason were the twofold source of the truth the one external the other internal we have seen sufficiently what he says as to the first let us observe now what he says as to the second Not had said that if the notion of papal infallibility were given up every man was given over to his own wit and discourse chillingworth replies if you mean by discourse right reason grounded on divine revelation and common notions written by god in the hearts of all men and deducing according to the never failing rules of logic consequent deductions from them if this be it which you mean by discourse it is very meet and reasonable and necessary that men as in all their actions so especially in that of greatest importance the choice of their way to happiness should be left unto it And he that follows this in all his opinions and actions, and does not only seem to do so, follows always God. Again, For my part I am certain that God hath given us our reason to discern between truth and falsehood, and he that makes not this use of it, but believes things he knows not why, I say that it is by chance that he believes the truth, and not by choice, and that I cannot but fear that God will not accept the sacrifice of fools. But you that would not have men follow their reason, what would you have them follow? their passions to pluck out their eyes and go blindfold no you would have them follow authority in god's name let them we also would have them follow authority for it is upon the authority of universal tradition that we should have them believe scripture but then as for the authority which you would have them follow you will let them see reason why they should follow it and is this not to go a little about to leave reason for a short time and then to come to it again and to do that which you condemn in others it being indeed a plain improbability for any man to submit his reason but to reason every man in short must have some rational conviction at the root of his religion however imperfect or concealed this conviction may be he may accept his religion at first hand from the priest or the church but he must have some reason for believing the church he may believe that a doctrine is true because coming directly from the spirit of god but he must have some evidence or in other words some reason for believing that the doctrine does come from the divine spirit chillingworth is quite as much opposed to a superstitious and irrational protestantism as to a superstitious and irrational popery The private judgment must not merely be a particular reason that a doctrine is true, which some men pretend but cannot prove to come from the Spirit of God, but a rational judgment founded upon evidence. For is there not a manifest difference between saying, the Spirit of God tells me that this is the meaning of such a text, which no man can possibly know to be true, it being a secret thing, and between saying, these and those reasons I have to show that this or that is true doctrine, or that this or that is the meaning of such a scripture? reason being a public and certain thing, and exposed to all men's trial and examination?" Such is the mode in which Chillingworth settles the primary question of religious certitude, or the source of religious truth. The remaining questions scarcely admit of vital controversy after laying down such a basis. It is plain that, differing here, the disputants must differ throughout, as to the sum or contents of religious truth, for example, no less than its source or authority. The one question continually involves the other not only is the church the authority with naught but all that the church stamps with its authority is vital or fundamental all is truth which the church affirms to be true not at all argues chillingworth that is truth only which is necessary to be believed in order to salvation the jesuit taunts him with the necessity of giving a catalogue of necessary or fundamental doctrines this is not at all requisite he says that may be fundamental and necessary to me, which to another is not so. The question is one of privilege and opportunity, as the case of Cornelius shows. Quote, in his Gentilism he was accepted for his present state, yet if he had continued in it and refused to believe in Christ after the sufficient revelation of the gospel to him and God's will to have him believe it, he that was accepted before would not have continued accepted. Close quote. As the Romanist, therefore, thinks it enough to say in general that all is fundamental which the church has defined, so it is enough for the Protestant to say in general quote, that it is sufficient for man's salvation to believe that the scripture is true and contains all things necessary for salvation and to do his best endeavor to find and believe the true sense of it. Close quote. The Jesuit argues that unless the church be infallible in all things, we cannot believe her in any one chillingworth pours great contempt upon this argument there is no more consequence in it he says than in this quote, the devil is not infallible therefore if he says there is one god i cannot believe him no geometrician is infallible in all things therefore not in these things which he demonstrates Close quote. if it be meant indeed that the church being fallible we cannot rationally believe her simply on her own word or authority there is no doubt of the proposition the church is only to be credited everything is only credible, on fair grounds of reason and evidence presented to the crediting intelligence. That there shall be always a church infallible in fundamentals, he admits, for this is simply to say that there shall be always a church. But that any given church is always an infallible guide in fundamentals is to say something quite different. This statement he entirely denies. The true church always shall be the teacher and maintainer of all necessary truth, for it is of the essence of the church to be so. But a man may be still a man, though he want a hand or an eye, so the church may be still a church, though it be defective in some profitable truth. It follows, of course, that the simplest creed is the best creed, and that which alone offers any basis of reunion among Christians. That which is known as the Apostles' Creed best answers to this description. It has been esteemed, quote, a sufficient summary or catalogue of fundamentals by the most learned Romanists and by antiquity what man or church soever believes this creed and all the evident consequences of it sincerely and heartily cannot possibly be in any error of simple belief offensive to god it appears to chillingworth that it would be of the utmost advantage for the christian world if men would recognize the adequacy of such a creed as this and hold all beyond as mere matters of speculation and opinion there appears to him no other prospect of christian union for this is most certain he says that to reduce christians to unity of communion there are but two ways the one by taking away the diversity of opinions touching matters of religion the other by showing that the diversity of opinions which is among the several sects of christians ought to be no hindrance to their unity in communion now the former of these is not to be hoped for without a miracle what then remains but that the other way must be taken and christians must be taught to set a higher value upon those points of faith and obedience in which they agree than upon those matters of less moment wherein they differ and understand that agreement in these ought to be more effectual to join them in one communion than their difference in other things of less moment when i say in one communion i mean in a common profession of those articles of faith wherein all consent A joint worship of god after such a way as all esteem lawful and a mutual performance of all those works of charity which christians owe one to another and to such a communion what better inducement could be thought of than to demonstrate that what was universally believed of all christians if it were joined with a love of truth and of holy obedience was sufficient to bring men to heaven for why should men be more rigid than god why should any error exclude any man from the church's communion which will not deprive him of eternal salvation Again, he says, If men would allow that the way to heaven is not narrower now than Christ left it, his yoke no heavier than he made it, that the belief of no more difficulties is required now to salvation than was in the primitive church, that no error is in itself destructive and exclusive from salvation now which was not then if instead of being zealous papists earnest calvinists rigid lutherans they would become themselves and be content that others should be plain and honest christians if all men would believe the scripture and freeing themselves from prejudice and passion would sincerely endeavour to find the true sense of it and live according to it and require no more of others than to do so nor denying their communion to any that do so would so order their public service of god that all which do so may without scruple or hypocrisy or protestation against any part of it join with them in it who doth not see that since all necessary truths are plainly and evidently set down in scripture there would of necessity be among all men in all things necessary unity of opinion and notwithstanding any other differences that are or could be unity of communion and charity and mutual toleration by which means all schism and heresy would be banished the world, and those wretched contentions which now rend and tear in pieces not the coat but the members and bowels of Christ, which mutual pride and tyranny and cursing and killing and damning would fain make immortal, should speedily receive a most blessed catastrophe. Close quote. The reader will notice the rising energy, the suppressed yet hurrying vehemence, which runs through this passage this is chillingworth's manner when fully under the influence of some great thought or feeling his mind kindles and his style catches the glow and impetuosity of a noble enthusiasm there is no subject stirs him more readily or more loftily than religious liberty the thought of this liberty and how miserably men grudge it to each other and christian churches strive to thwart and limit it instead of seeking their strength in educating it never fails to fire his language and makes it move with that grand if somewhat irregular energy which is its highest feature he acknowledges the authority of the divine word to control man's faith and no other authority propose to me anything out of the bible he says and require whether i believe it or no and seem it never so incomprehensible to human reason i will subscribe it with hand and heart as knowing no demonstration can be stronger than this god hath said so therefore it is true in other things i will take no man's liberty of judgment from him neither shall any man take mine from me i will think no man the worse man nor the worse christian i will love no man the less for differing in opinion from me and what measure i meet to others i expect from them again I am fully assured that God does not, and therefore that man ought not, to require any more of any man than this, to believe the scripture to be God's word, to endeavor to find the true sense of it, and to live according to it. Freedom of religious opinion was thus placed by Chillingworth on its true basis more than two centuries ago, six years before the Westminster Assembly met. If anything were needed to show the height to which he rises above the divines of the time, this simple fact is enough to show it the principle of religious latitude had indeed been already laid down by the remonstrant divines in holland but none had seized it more clearly or boldly than chillingworth and none had heretofore given such systematic expression to it in england it is to be observed that he announces it as a principle for the direction and government of churches and not merely as a barren concession to the force of philosophical and religious indifference It derives all its interest to him from its connection with religious earnestness and its seeming to open up the way for the reconstitution and advancement of the Christian Church. The idea of religious latitude being something very good outside the Church, but an impossibility within it, is opposed to his whole conception. According to him, on the contrary, the only valid basis for the Church, the only hope of its ever becoming what it professes to be, Catholic, is the utmost freedom in the light of Scripture whatever tends to limit or control religious faith beyond the one controlling authority of the divine word is evil. This is absolute when we recognize it. But whatever tends to interfere with the simplicity of this absolute spiritual authority is a source of ecclesiastical disorganization, of unchristian disorder. It is when he touches this strain that his language rises to indignant eloquence. This presumptuous imposing of the senses of men upon the words of God, the special senses of men upon the general words of god and laying them upon men's consciences together under the equal penalty of death and damnation this vain conceit that we can speak of the things of god better than in the words of god thus deifying our own interpretations and tyrannous enforcing them upon others this restraining of the word of god from that latitude and generality and the understandings of men from that liberty wherein christ and the apostles left them is and hath been the only fountain of all the schisms of the church and that which makes them immortal the common incendiary of christendom and that which tears in pieces not the coat but the bowels and members of christ redente turca nec dolente Judeo. take away these walls of separation and all will quickly be one take away this persecuting burning cursing damning of men for not subscribing to the words of men as the words of god require of christians only to believe christ and to call no man master but him only let those leave claiming infallibility that have no title to it and let them that in their word disclaim it disclaim it likewise in their actions in a word take away tyranny which is the devil's instrument to support errors and superstitions and impieties in the several parts of the world which could not otherwise long withstand the power of truth I say take away tyranny and restore christians to their just and full liberty of captivating their understanding to scripture only and as rivers when they have a free passage run all to the ocean so it may well be hoped by god's blessing that universal liberty thus unrestricted may quickly reduce christendom to truth and unity it is unnecessary to carry our exposition further these extracts render chillingworth's principles sufficiently apparent They are the principles evidently neither of the Laudian school, with which he was personally associated, nor of the Puritan school, to which he was opposed. He stands aloof from both, on a higher platform. From the school of Laud he is separated by his elevation of Scripture, not only into the Supreme, but into the only authority in religious opinion and controversy. And while the mere general assertion of this principle might seem to place him on the same level with the Puritan, The manner in which he maintains and interprets the principle separates him widely from it. While he recognizes the Bible as the only authority in religion, he recognizes at the same time the free right of the individual reason to interpret the Bible. Nor does he acknowledge this merely as a generality, which Puritanism may be also said to do, but he accepts it as a living practical principle in all its consequences. The right of free scriptural interpretation, for example, implies the right of religious difference. Beyond an obvious round of great facts and truths, to be found everywhere plainly revealed in Scripture, to be found complete in any one of the Gospels, there is no unity of religious belief possible or desirable among Christians. Beyond such facts, of which the Apostles' Creed is the historical summary, he proclaims the principle of religious latitude. This is his distinction. Christianity is with him belief in Christ, the great facts of Christ's life and death for man's salvation without either a sacramentarian or a calvinistic or an arminian theory of the mode in which this salvation is made effectual to man he requires of christians in his own language to believe only in christ and will damn no man or doctrine without express and certain warrant from god's word he recognizes the authority of god in religion and no other this authority is addressed in scripture to the individual reason and conscience so that the humblest intelligence may see and own it there is no second authority entitled to speak for the divine voice or to interfere between it and the individual the voice of the church the voice of creeds and of councils should be reverently listened to but they possess no binding authority in themselves over the christian conscience In so far as they express the truth of scripture we are to be thankful for them accept and use them but what we acknowledge in them is not the human expressions or temporary form of doctrine but the divine substance and meaning which they have sought to render By the religion of Protestants, I do not understand the doctrine of Luther or Calvin or Melanchthon, nor the confession of Augusta or Geneva, nor the catechism of Heidelberg, nor the articles of the Church of England, no, nor the harmony of Protestant confessions, but that wherein they all agree, and which they all subscribe with a greater harmony as a perfect rule of their faith and actions, that is, the Bible. Chillingworth was thus a Protestant truly and consistently. He recognized and for the first time in english theological literature fully expounded the meaning of protestantism and its logical corollary the principle of religious latitude or of agreeing to differ in all matters of religious theory in which the varying tastes tempers and judgments of men necessarily create difference he held fast to the supremacy of scripture the great watchword of the sixteenth century against popery but he appreciated as the sixteenth century had not done the free action of reason upon Scripture. To the cause of Protestantism and of liberal theology, he has thus rendered an abiding service. There are few names, upon the whole, even in a history so fruitful in great names as that of the Church of England, which more excite our admiration, or which claim a higher place in the development of religious thought. End of chapter five, part four.